You're listening to the Odyssey Out Loud. I'm Anna Katerina. Episode 9 Arrival in Sparta. When dawn appeared, rose fingered child of the morning, Telemachus and Pesistratos yoked the horses and mounted the colorful, intricate chariot. They drove away from the front door and the echoing portico. Pesistratos whipped the horses into motion, and the two, without reluctance, flew. They came to the plain, full of wheat, and then, carried quickly by the horses, they finished their journey. The sun sank, and all the roads went dark, and they reached mountainous Lacadaimon, set in the hollow between the hills, and they went to the house of glorious Menelaus. They found him surrounded by relatives, hosting a wedding feast in his home for his irreproachable son and daughter. He was sending her to the son of Achilleus, destroyer of men. He'd first promised and agreed to give her in Troy, and now the gods were making the wedding happen. Menelaus sent her there, with horses and chariots to the far-famed city of the Myrmidons, over whom Achilleus' son ruled. He brought Alector's daughter from Sparta for his son, strong Megapenthes, all grown up, born to him by a slave. The gods no longer gave children to Helen, after she'd had her first child, lovely Hermione, who had the shape of golden Aphrodite. So the neighbors and relatives of glorious Menelaus feasted throughout the great high-roofed house, enjoying themselves, and in their midst a divine singer sang, playing the lyre, and two acrobats, beginning the dance, whirled in the middle. The hero Telemachus and Nestor's splendid son stood in the doorway with their horses, and the lord Eteoneus, the agile companion of glorious Menelaus, came out and saw them, and he made his way through the house to report to the shepherd of men. Standing nearby, he addressed him with winged words. Menelaus, raised by Zeus, there are some strangers over there, two men. They look like the descendants of the great Olympian. Tell me, should we unharness their swift horses or send them to someone else who'd welcome them? Very angry, bright-haired Menelaus said to him, You didn't used to be an idiot, Boethoideateoneus, but now you talk like one, like a child. We fed off the hospitality of others before we came here, in the hope that Zeus might put an end to our hardships. So unharness the strangers' horses and bring the men in to join the feast. That's what he said, and Eteoneus hurried through the hall and commanded other quick attendants to go along with him. They freed the sweating horses from under the yoke, tethered them to the horse mangers, and threw grain to them, mixed with white barley. They leaned the chariot against the bright inner wall, and they led the men into the divine house. Telemachus and Pesistratos marveled, looking around the home of the king raised by Zeus. There was a radiance like the sun or the moon throughout the high-roofed house of glorious Menelaus. Then, once they'd looked around to their heart's content, they stepped into well-polished tubs and bathed, and once the slave women had washed and anointed them with oil, they threw tunics and wool cloaks around them, and they sat down in chairs next to Atredes Menelaus. A maid carrying water in a fine golden pitcher poured it over a silver basin for them to wash with and pulled a polished table up next to them. A distinguished housekeeper brought bread and put it before them, and placed many other foods with it, generous to them with what was on hand. A carver brought up platters of all kinds of meats and set it before them, and placed golden cups beside them. 
bright-haired Menelaus spoke, welcoming them both. Have some food and be welcome. Once you've eaten, we'll ask you what people you come from. Clearly, your father's bloodline hasn't been lost. You look like descendants of scepter-bearing kings, men raised by Zeus. Lesser men couldn't father people like you. That's what he said, and he took up the meat, and he placed the rib roast, the best part, in front of them. The sign of respect they'd given Menelaus for himself. Then they put their hands to the good things laid before them. Once they'd finished with their food and drink, Telemachus said to Nestor's son, holding his head near to his so the others wouldn't hear, Nestorides, delight of my heart, look at the way the bronze gleams throughout the echoing house. The gold and amber, silver and ivory, the courtyard of Olympian Zeus must be something like this inside. With just as many indescribable things as these, I'm amazed looking at them. Bright-haired Menelaus heard his statement, and voicing winged words he said to them, Dear children, no mortal can compete with Zeus. His houses and possessions are immortal. Some man might compete with me for wealth or not, for wandering very much and suffering a great deal. After eight years I came back and brought my ships in, having gone to the Egyptians, the Ethiopians, the Sidonians, and the Aramboi, and having wandered to Cyprus, Phoenicia, and to Libya, where the sheep give birth three times a year and the rams sprout horns almost at once. The sheep always provide abundantly no one there, not lords, not herdsmen, lacks any cheese or meat or sweet milk. It was while I wandered around those places, building up my wealth, that another stealthily killed my brother, unawares to the treachery of his wretched wife. So it doesn't bring me any joy, ruling over these things. You probably heard all about this from your fathers, whoever yours are, since I suffered a great deal, and lost a very well-situated house with many fine things inside it. I would rather live in that house with just a third of those things and have those men safe who were lost in wide Troy far from horse-grazing Argos. But regardless, sitting in our hall, I often mourn and grieve for all of them. Sometimes I indulge myself weeping. Sometimes I make myself stop. It doesn't take long to get sick of numbing grief. Though I grieve for all of them, I don't mourn as much as I do for one in particular. I don't want to sleep or eat when I think of him, since none of the Achaeans worked as hard as Odysseus worked or achieved so much. There was certainly trouble for him, and for me, a haunting, persistent pain on his account. He's been gone so long, and we have no idea if he's alive or dead. No doubt they mourn him now. The old man Laertes... Sensible Penelope and the newborn he left in his house, Telemachus. That's what Menelaus said, and he stirred up in Telemachus a longing to weep for his father. Hearing of Odysseus, tears fell from his eyes and hit the ground, and he held his dark cloak in front of his face with both hands. Menelaus noticed him, and he worried whether he should let him mention his father himself or question him about everything and test him first. While he thought these things over, Helen came from her high-ceilinged, incense-filled room, looking like Artemis of the Golden Distaff. Adreste came with and set up a well-made couch, Alkipe brought a soft wool rug, and Philo brought a silver basket which was given to Helen by Alcandre, the wife of Polybus who lived in Egyptian Thebes, where people have more possessions in their homes than anywhere else. 
Polybus gave Menelaus two silver bathtubs, and two tripods, and ten talents a considerable amount of gold. Moreover, his wife gave Helen beautiful gifts. She sent her off with a golden distaff, and a wheeled basket made of silver, and the rim finished with gold. Helen's attendant Philo brought it, and placed it beside her, full of artfully made yarn. Then the distaff, holding violet-dark wool, was laid on it. Helen sat on the couch, a footstool under her feet, and she immediately questioned her husband about everything. Menelaus raised by Zeus. Do we know who these men who've come to our house say they are? I feel compelled to say something. I don't know if I'm right or wrong, but... I declare I've never seen someone who looked so similar. Neither a man nor a woman. I'm amazed, looking at him. Since this one seems so like the son of great-hearted Odysseus. Telemachus. The newborn he left in his home when Euachians came to Troy, planning audacious war for the sake of dog-eyed me. There is another word for that. A controversial word. Helen could have said, bitch. She might be saying, bitch. Kinopis is a rare word, an infrequently used word, a word for extreme situations and anger, and, homerically speaking, it's usually a word for a woman. A cruel mother. A cheating, murderous wife. Helen's own self-deprecation. Kinopis is dog-eyed, but if that doesn't pack the right punch, bitch is a sharp, extreme situation kind of word, and Helen could be saying it. Sitting around that table, with the reputation she has, maybe she wants to get there first. So many people lost, so many children, fatherless, and all on account. I know you're thinking it, don't pretend. Of a bitch like me. And bright-haired Menelaus says back to that. Just so, wife. Now I see it too, the same comparison you made. His hands and feet are just like Odysseus's. The look in his eyes, his face, his hair. And I'll tell you, just now I said some things remembering Odysseus, how he labored and suffered for me, and then sharp tears fell from beneath Telemachus' brows and he held his dark cloak before his eyes. Pesistratos Nestorides said back to him, Atredes Menelaus, leader of men, raised by Zeus. It's true, just like you said. This one is the son of that one, but he's tactful, and he's ashamed at heart coming here for the first time, throwing his words in front of you, whose voice we delight in as if it were a god's. Nestor the Grenian horseman sent me with him as a guide. He wanted to see you so you could give him some advice about what he should do and say. The child of an absent father finds many difficulties in his home, since there might not be anyone else to help him, just as Telemachus' father is gone and there isn't anyone else who might stand between him and the trouble in his region. Bright-haired Menelaus said back to him in reply, This is unbelievable! The son of a very, very dear man has come to my home, a man who on my account suffered many hardships, and who I said I'd welcome if he showed up above all other Argives, if thunderous Zeus the Olympian granted both of us a homecoming with our swift ships over the sea. I'd have settled a city for him in Argos, and made him a home, bringing him from Ithaca with his child and his people and all his belongings. I'd have cleared out a whole city for him, one of the nearby towns ruled by me. 
With him here, we'd have visited each other all the time, and nothing would have stood in the way of our love and enjoyment of each other until death's dark cloud covered us. But some god must have begrudged him this and made him, unhappy man, the only one without a homecoming. That's what Menelaus said, and he stirred up in all of them a longing to weep. Argive Helen, born of Zeus, wept, and Telemachus and the Thredes Menelaus, and the eyes of Nestor's son weren't dry. His heart remembered irreproachable Antilochus, his brother, who'd been killed by the splendid son of shining Eos. Remembering him, he spoke winged words. Atredes. The old man Nestor used to say, when we talked about you in his hall and questioned each other about you, that you were exceptionally sensitive for a mortal. And now, if it's in any way possible, would you humor me? For I, at least, don't enjoy grieving during dinner. Tomorrow will be a new day. I don't have any problem with grieving for a man who's died and met his fate. It's the only concession for miserable mortals. That we cut our hair and let tears spill down our cheeks. I've lost a brother myself. Not at all the worst of the Argives. You probably knew him. I at least never met or saw him, but they say Antilochus was a faster runner than others, and an outstanding warrior. Bright-haired Menelaus said back to him in reply, My friend, you've said that just like a sensible man. Even someone older than you would have said and done. That's the kind of man your father is, and you also speak with spirit. It's easy to recognize the offspring of a man whom Cronion has spun happiness for, both in his birth and marriage, as he's given Nestor throughout all his days the gift to grow old comfortably in his hall, and in turn his sons have good sense and are excellent spearmen. Let's stop weeping, like we were before. We'll wash our hands and turn our minds to dinner again. There'll be stories, too, till dawn, which Telemachus and I must tell each other in full. That's what he said, and Asphalion, the quick attendant of glorious Menelaus, poured water over their hands, and then they put their hands to the good things laid before them. Then Zeus-born Helen had another thought. Immediately, she threw a drug into the wine they were drinking, a pain-banishing grief cure that makes you forget everything bad. Once it was mixed, whoever swallowed it would find that no tears would fall from their cheeks all day, not even if their parents died, not even if their brother or dear son were cleaved in two with bronze right in front of them. Zeus' daughter had such effective, fine pharmaceuticals, which Polydamna, the Egyptian wife of Thon, gave to her. And in Egypt, everyone's a healer knowing more than anyone else, because they're descendants of that great god of healing and of medicine, Paeon. After Helen threw the drugs in, she told them to pour the wine. Then, once again, she said back to them in reply, Atredes Menelaus, raised by Zeus, and you children of noble men. Since, at one time or other, the god Zeus gives good and bad, as he's capable of all things, for now, sit in our hall, feast, and enjoy the stories. I'll tell you appropriate ones. I couldn't narrate, or even name, all of steadfast Odysseus' ventures. There were so many. But what he took on and did in Troy, 
where you Achaeans suffered misery. That was really something. He injured himself with disfiguring blows, threw an ugly cloth around his shoulders so he looked like a servant, and he plunged into the wide streets of the city of hostile men. Then he hid himself, disguised as someone else, a beggar, and on the Achaean ships he was no such thing. He went into the Trojan city like this, and no one noticed him. I'm the only one who recognized him like that, and I questioned him, but he cunningly evaded me. But once I'd washed and anointed him with oil, and put clothes on him, and swore a strong oath not to reveal to the Trojans that he was Odysseus, until he had reached his swift ships and his tents, then he told me all the Achaeans' plans. Then, killing many Trojans with his sharp-edged weapons, he went back to the Argives, bringing a great deal of intelligence with him. The other Trojan women wailed loudly, but my heart rejoiced, since my mind already had turned towards home, and I regretted my blindness, given to me by Aphrodite, when she led me there from my dear homeland, abandoning my child, my home, and my husband, who's not lacking, either in mind or body. Bright-haired Menelaus said back to her in reply, Yes, wife, what you've said is all correct. By now I've learned the will and mind of many men, of heroes, and I've gone over much of the earth, but I've yet to see anyone with my own eyes who has the dear heart of steadfast Odysseus. But what he took on and did in the polished horse where we sat, all the best of the Argives bringing murder and doom for the Trojans, that was really something. You showed up then, wife. A daimon who wanted to offer glory to the Trojans must have encouraged you, and godlike Deiphobos went along with you. Going around the hollow trap three times, prodding it, you called out the best of the Danaeans, calling them by name, making your voice sound like the voices of all the Argives' wives. Then I, and Tydides, and divine Odysseus, sitting in the middle, heard the way you were shouting. We both started up, eager to go out or respond immediately from inside, but Odysseus held us back, and stopped us, even though we were desperate. Then all the other sons of the Achaeans were silent, and Antiklos was the only one who wanted to respond. But Odysseus covered his mouth with his strong hands, and he didn't let go. He kept his hold on Antiklos until Pallas Athena led you away from us, and he saved all the Achaeans. Spirited Telemachus said back to him, Atredes Menelaus, leader of men raised by Zeus, this is worse. None of this kept him from dismal destruction. It wouldn't matter even if his heart was made of iron. But come on now, show us the way to bed so we can relax right away and be lulled by sweet sleep. That's what he said, and Argive Helen ordered the slave women to set up beds under the portico and to throw beautiful dark blankets on them and to lay thick rugs on top and above that to spread wool cloaks for them to wrap in. The women came out of the great hall, carrying torches, and made the beds, and the herald led the guests out, and the hero Telemachus and Nestor's shining son went to bed right in the courtyard of the hall. Atredes lay down in an inner part of the lofty house, and long-robed Helen, a goddess among women, lay beside him.
You've been listening to the Odyssey Out Loud. I'm Anna Katarina. You can learn more and listen to new episodes at theodysseyoutloud.com. And if you'd like to support the show, you can go to patreon.com forward slash odysseyoutloud. Thank you for listening. <laughs>